You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach with a question for you. What the hell is happening to our country? After the jubilation that we all experienced on Saturday when the count was done and it turned out that Joe Biden had won the election narrowly, but had decisively won it, I felt about 30 pounds lighter. I think I stood up taller. There was a bounce in my step everywhere I went in New York. It was a joy to watch people being happy. Cars and trucks honked. People hit things that made nice noises. We clapped. I saw a U.S. postal truck drive down the street. Everyone applauded. It was so touching. And then we saw the fireworks in London and in New Zealand and heard the bells pealing in Paris. It was a worldwide relief. And then, like a loud, bratty, bloviator child whose sixth grade teacher told him to sit down and be quiet, let someone else talk for a change, he acted out and sulked and actually found ways to punish the other kids, the teacher, the principal, the cafeteria lady, and the entire school district. If the stakes weren't so high, it could almost be funny, but there's nothing funny about a mentally disturbed tyrant. No matter what he does, it seems he's got people who will cover for him, who will agree with him, who will suck up to him and support him in his crooked plans. We're all reading now about how Trumpism, as they call it, will survive even when he leaves the White House. I'm furious that we're normalizing his behavior. There's nothing even remotely acceptable about cheating and lying. Anyway, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have won the election, and that feels great. But I wanted to discuss the president's malfeasances and the way the Department of Justice and the Supreme Court seem to have been politicized with a brilliant lawyer whose career it has been, though she is part Canadian, to write about laws in the courts for Slate. It's Dahlia Lithwick, and we are so fortunate to have her this week. Spoiler alert, she made me feel better. But first, the five things that made my life better this week. Numero uno, Joe Biden. He's calm. He's soothing. He's saying the right things. Maybe he's not the candidate you most wanted, but he is the person we need to be our president now. How can the other 70 million who voted for Trump take offense when he says he wants to heal the divisions in our country? As Lindsey Graham said, I'm paraphrasing, if you don't like Joe Biden, there might be something wrong with you. Number two. Kamala Harris. The ceiling has finally burst open. A woman of color, a woman, a woman, vice president, who can express joy as well as probing with ferocity. I'm still speaking, she says. She will be a wonderful vice president. Number three, the weather. In case you didn't know, and I'm not I'm not in Florida where there's a storm. In the mid-Atlantic, it's been in the low 70s every day since the Biden victory. It's a gift. It is such a gift. And everyone in New York feels it's kind of a sign that good things are happening. Although, as you and I know, really, it's a sign of global warming. But whatever. Number four, tuna fish salad sandwiches. Little pivot there. Have you forgotten how good they are for lunch? I had. They're the perfect lunch, with or without a pickle, and preferably on toast. And number five, poll watchers, 
vote counters, secretaries of state, state election workers. It's not glamorous work, but they are the unsung heroes of our democracy. Thanks to all of them for caring about doing their job so well. And in a moment, we will talk to Dahlia Lithwick. Don't go away. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and I am really excited today to talk to Dahlia Lithwick. I read her essays on the law on Slate.com. I'm sure you do, too. She's also the host of Amicus, which is a podcast, I'm guessing, about the law. A lot of stuff to cover in today's podcast. So welcome, Dahlia. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I believe that I'm talking to you in another country. Is that true? Yes, I uh, we are in Toronto right now. So I guess nominally that is Canada. And we fled Brooklyn at the very beginning of COVID. I got sick and my son got sick and there were no tests and the border closed and we keep waiting for it to open. But also, you know, 100 percent mask compliance here. So we're okay. Well, I have to say I would go to Toronto in a second. In a second. It's such a civilized and nice place to be, I think. I mean, I've never lived there, but I like visiting. I've never lived uh, here. We lived in, I mean, oh, I could curl your hair. We were in my brother's basement. Like, we've been in many places. I will say that the response to Donald Trump's victory was very Toronto-ish. It was very grim, muted, smiling. But, you You know. You mean Biden's victory. (laughs) Oh, did I? Oh, my God. Did I just say Trump's victory? Uh, I'm afraid you did. Oh, my God. Dr. Freud. Dr. Freud, call your office. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So, let's get right into it. Today, we're hearing that the Department of Justice is going to get involved with the electors process to, I guess, recast this election to be a Trump victory. Can they even do that? I don't think it's quite that dramatic. I think that Bill Barr, the attorney general, who had gone completely silent for months, right? I mean, we all... He basically disappeared, yeah. I mean, and this is the same Bill Barr, we should be really clear, who in July and August was saying all the same rip-snorting crazy stuff that Trump was saying about mail-in ballots and foreign countries are going to scoop them up and fake them out, like crazy unsubstantiated things. So we thought he'd be all in for this election, and he silent, silent for weeks and weeks, and then pops up yesterday has some top secret meeting with Mitch McConnell and then pops up with this funny memo saying that even though the Justice Department has this long standing policy not to get involved uh, in elections until after they've been certified, he is going to authorize the Justice Department to start to investigate if there has been wildly significant election misconduct. So there's a lot of weasel words that he uses in the memo that suggests that he's not going to send his squadron of flying monkeys to investigate every single case of alleged vote fraud. But he does really dramatically reverse a long-standing DOJ policy that the Justice Department keeps its hands off, it's worth saying somebody immediately quit over that decision. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that you're evincing 
the appropriate level of alarm is this feels like another, it feels like it's of a piece with the marshalling of the institutions of government to perpetuate this completely false narrative that the election was stolen. So in other words, the institutions that we have all grown up with thinking that they are independent have all thrown their weight behind a very partisan effort to put it mildly. I mean, we've seen Donald Trump regard the Department of Justice as his personal lawyer, and they have complied seemingly without a bump or a hesitation. I mean, I think that that's largely true. I would say that I think that the bumps and the hesitations came when the Justice Department, even with Donald Trump's urging, probably insistence, failed to deliver the October surprise that Donald Trump had ordered up, right? So there were a couple of, quote, unquote, investigations. One was this John Durham investigation. One was this perplexing unmasking. I'm doing air quotes because I still don't quite know what that was about. (laughs) So like, hear me say unmasking. Nobody quite knows what these were. But the fact is, and we had John Durham have a very senior person working with him who quit rather than be involved in this. So we have seen, in some sense, the center holding. The Justice Department apparently could be weaponized to do most all of Trump's bidding. And you're right, descriptively, they went beyond what anyone could have imagined. But they didn't go all the way. And I think to the degree we're hearing about friction between Trump and Barr right now, it's the failure to go all the way. And I hadn't heard about that friction. So that's interesting. That's something new for me because it looked like there was no friction. In fact, it was uh, BFF. Whether you go, I go. Yeah, it looked like that. And I think it really was that for a long time. And I should also note that a lot of dummies like me were really relieved when Bill Barr came on after Jeff Sessions left because we all said stupid things like, oh, he's an institutionalist and he's a lawyer's lawyer and he's been Mm -hmm. a government guy his whole life. So I think we a little bit got pants, those of us who follow the justice beat, because it seemed as though Barr would not go nearly as far as Sessions had been willing to go. And of course, we were wrong about all of that, starting with the recasting of the Mueller report, Mm -hmm. (laughs) exonerating Trump, and then really using, as you say, the entire apparatus of the DOJ, both to exculpate Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and Donald Mm -hmm. Trump cronies, but also to really go after people that Donald Trump felt were part of whatever the deep state cabal that he imagines. And so I think you're right that he and Barr were in lockstep in ways that shocked many of us. But over, I think, the last few months, one of the reasons I suspect Barr got very quiet is that when he couldn't deliver the goods, he couldn't have the girl pup out of the cake in order to (laughs) deliver the election after this Durham report, I think that Donald Trump has been very frustrated with him. And now he's in this weird pincer place where he can't make Donald Trump too, too mad. But he's also, I think, on the hook for a whole bunch of stuff that might come to light post-election. So he he doesn't have a lot of operating room. And I think maybe to just go back to the memo, I think that's why it had so many cadgy weasel words. Mm -hmm. He's trying to cover himself without further, I think, implicating himself in what feels, when you're feeling a little grim this week, like a kind of slow rolling coup. Do you think that his head is on the chopping block? Because we know Donald Trump likes to 
fire people as a kind of reflex when things aren't going his way. Yeah, I've been saying in the last couple of days that I think, you know, Gina Haspel, other people Mm -hmm. that look to be in Donald Trump's sights may well be followed by a Bill Barr. I think it's just useful to think of this as Donald Trump is perfectly transactional. Mm -hmm. And even the firing of Mark Esper, this is somebody who could not say yes loud and enthusiastically enough to (laughs) Donald Trump. But the minute he crossed him, he's gone. And I think you don't kind of bank goodwill with Donald Trump. All you need to do is cross him once. We saw that with Jeff Sessions and you're done. And so I don't think that the fact that you and I can look at Bill Barr and say he gave Donald Trump 95 percent of what he wanted, it's enough that he didn't deliver this election. Interesting. Why would Bill Barr have gone so far astray from the institutionalist he was to sacrifice his historic reputation as the attorney general? I think there are two answers, Lisa. One is anybody who watched his conduct during Iran-Contra would say, look, he was never the straightest of straight shooters. He was always a partisan political actor. Mm -hmm. And that in some sense, he hasn't moved that far. But I think that he has changed. And it's very, very interesting to see somebody who comes up from particularly the the post-Watergate culture of the Justice Department, where really the DOJ was so crippled after Watergate that it did years and years of work to build itself up as an independent entity that didn't carry water for the president, that wouldn't keep the president's secrets or persecute the president's enemies. And so somebody with that deep level of acculturation of Mm -hmm. those DOJ values, even if he's a partisan, I think you're exactly right. Something clearly flipped with him. I'll say I I spoke to Don Ayer, who was in the Justice Department and overlapped with him at several times and actually handed the keys of the Justice Department to Bill Barr at one point. And he, you know, as a lifelong Republican, deeply conservative, now a never-Trumper, said he really felt that something had shifted in Bill Barr in recent years. And he didn't quite recognize, even in the Bill Barr he knew then, the Bill Barr we are seeing today. And he had some really, I thought, interesting and provocative theories. He talked about it on my podcast. I think he's written about it in The Atlantic. But I think he does feel that Barr absolutely has clung to and become obsessive about both the theory of unitary executive and all-power executive branch. you know, a White House that controls all things and the other branches are subordinate. And also this kind of creeping religious Mm. worldview of light and darkness and good and bad. And some of that stuff has leached into some of the speeches he's given, most notably at Notre Dame last year, where he's really talked from a valence of deeply religious antagonism and kind of weird culture war. Dahlia, it's like all the evangelists who support an adulterer, Adderall-sniffing, porn star-using, divorced, multi-divorced liar. I mean, how this religious zealot, who is now Bill Barr, can find it in his faith to associate with somebody like that. It's such a good 
question, Lisa, and I feel like when I tried to put it to Don Ayer and to say, is Donald Trump using Bill Barr or is Bill Barr using Donald Trump? Because that's how <laughs> I distilled the thing you just said. And yes. his, his answer was kind of both, that this is mutually useful to them, that Donald Trump, his entire life has been an attempt to replicate the relationship he thought his dad had with Roy Cohn, right? The uh-huh. famous New York right. institution who just didn't care what norms or laws he should shattered. He just wanted to know who the judge was and how to work over the judge to get an outcome. And we Mm -hmm. know that Donald Trump famously kept saying, where's my Roy Cohn? Why isn't Jeff Sessions my Roy Cohn? Why isn't Don McGahn, White House counsel, my Roy Cohn? He kind of got as close as he was going to get to a Roy Cohn in Bill Barr. And at the same time, I think you're exactly right that Bill Barr saw in this perfectly transactional way in Donald Trump a way to put into place a kind of pristine vision of both a unitary executive branch that is absolutely superior to the other two branches of government and a weird religious (laughs) kind of worldview that I can't even parrot back to you because it's so beyond my comprehension. Well, I get it. I think somewhere there's a Anthony Kennedy aspect to this too and a Deutsche Bank aspect to this too. I wonder about it. Let me put it this way. You're much smarter than I am. Is there some kind of connection between what is going on with the Justice Department and the weird way that Anthony Kennedy retired youthfully, we should say, and Brett Kavanaugh got his seat? I'm not weaving this very well, but Anthony Kennedy's son was the banker of Donald Trump. There are many myriad weirds here. There's a lot that is weird. Uh, One part that is weird is, and I think if Donald Trump, in fact, leaves office in January, which is less (laughs) certain than it was last Saturday. But if he, in fact, packs up and leaves, I think you're going to see Cy Vance begin to bring very, very serious financial investigations and charges and possibly indictments. And we are going to know a lot about this question of where Donald Trump's money came from. And Mm -hmm. we kind of know, to put it in the simplest way, that so much of what Trump has done has been a kind of elaborate money laundering operation. My friend, Professor Jennifer Taub, always says, where is the money? Follow the money. Like, that's Mm -hmm. been the question. And there's no question that when nobody else would lend to him, Deutsche Bank stepped in. So I think we're going to know a lot more about how Deutsche Bank effectuated some of that. It's worth noting that Deutsche Bank has really been pulling away in the last few weeks. But I think we're going to know a lot more about how it is that Donald Trump seemingly has millions of dollars to throw around in all these empty apartments. And Mm -hmm. his son says all our money comes from Russia and we don't know what the full story is. So that's going to be material, I think, soon. You're absolutely right that Justice Kennedy's son worked for Deutsche Bank. We don't know, I think, yet how intimately he was connected to Donald Trump's finances. We do know that on a hot mic at one of the State of the Unions, where the Supreme Court justices (laughs) were greeting him, we all overheard Donald Trump and Anthony Kennedy have an intimate moment where they talked about how much the Trump family loved Kennedy's son. So that was bad for everyone concerned. And then the 
Brett Kavanaugh piece is hinky, too, to be perfectly honest, because we now know, I think Ruth Marcus reported this out in her book about Kavanaugh, that when Anthony Kennedy was mulling retirement, it became a huge engineered kind of quasi-coup, not something that's frequently done, that when they floated to him that his beloved, cherished former clerk, Brett Kavanaugh, then on the D.C. circuit, would take his seat, he was willing to step down. So the whole thing is deeply interconnected in ways that are just a little bit gross when you think about how we want to hive off the Supreme Court from the White House, hive off the White House from the financial dealings <laughs> of presidents who were supposed to, by the way, divest themselves. So all of this is gross and you have to really look at it not in the 2020 world of everything is gross, but in the 2015 world of this would be really gross if all this happened and all of it happened. And all of it happened and then more. And there's so many violations on a daily basis, whether it's the Hatch Act, whether it's the monuments, separation of the different branches. I mean, at the end of this national nightmare, let's say, when Trump eventually leaves, whether it's on his own steam or whether it's kicking and screaming, will someone be able to investigate all the bad things he and his administration did, all the ways that cabinet members profited from inside information and so on? Or will everybody say, oh, thank God he's gone. Let's just move on. And he gets away with basically it again. You know, there's so many parts of that. And some parts are purely structural, right? Like we could envision a world in which a lot of things that we thought were laws like the Hatch Act or that we thought were strong constitutional directives like the Emoluments Clause, right? The president can't profit off his <laughs> office. None of that, right. it turns out, is enforceable. So you could imagine a world where, and I could almost imagine a world where even a, a deeply riven and dysfunctional government would say, you know what? We don't want Hunter Biden to profit off his dad's presidency. Right. So we are going to pass a whole host of anti-corruption laws with real teeth that would keep this from ever happening again. And then I think you could also imagine a world in which things like the inspectors general, who Donald Trump has just fired willy-nilly when mm -hmm. the inspector general in any different branch comes forward and says, oh, this was awful. Donald Trump sends him packing. And so I think there are ways to bolster strong, independent inspectors. General, there's a way we've seen it after, as I said, it post Watergate reforms to bolster the idea of an independent Justice Department, although my God, that would be an immense amount of work. But I think that the question you're asking isn't just prospective, it's also retroactive. Can there be accountability for Donald Trump himself and That's for right. Michael Pompeo and for Betsy DeVos and all the people who profiteered in this time? And I think that's a really, really, it's almost an existential question because we do know that after Obama was elected the first time and there was a real push. I was one of the people who pushed for meaningful accountability around the torture memos, around the black sites, around the entire torture program. Uh -huh. Donald uh, And Barack Obama almost immediately said, look, bygones, <laughs> we're not going to fight that fight. We're not going to tear ourselves apart. We're going to move on. And I think there is, I mean, maybe you can explain it better than I can, but I think there is a deep 
longing among progressives and Democrats to get back to the old norms? Why can't the Senate just work? You know, Chris Coons just wants to be friends with Republicans across the aisle. There's such a longing for, we'll draw a line under this, bygones be bygones, and work toward reinstating the olden days of comedy and respect and working across the aisle and John McCain and we love each other. And I don't fully understand how sometimes that ideal of we're going to work our way back to each other and lots of talk about that, right? Joe Biden can't speak without saying the word healing, but the ways in which that gets in the way of the kind of accountability that you're asking for. And I think, as I said, we are going to see accountability because there's going to be Cy Vance and there are going to be state investigations. We know that the Eugene Carroll lawsuit right. is going forward in New York. We know that right. Robbie Kaplan is suing <laughs> Donald Trump in about four different contexts. So there will be some. But I think the big structural accountability you're talking about, how did government get so broken so fast, would would require a kind of public will that I don't know that it's in evidence right now. Well, right, because we found out last week that for all the expectation that America had had enough of Donald Trump and that we were really broken and hurting, there were 70 million people who thought he was doing a fine job. Before we get to your five things, Dahlia, I can't not talk about what happened in the Supreme Court today because today was the day that we're taping on the day that the Affordable Care Act was brought back to the Supreme Court. And there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you. As far as we know, it was saved by the Supreme Court, right? Well, we only know what we heard at arguments, and any court watcher will tell you not to read too, too much into the justices' questions until the opinion is in your hot little hands. But I think everything you read is what I'm reading, and what I heard in the telephonic argument is that both John Roberts and likely Brett Kavanaugh and possibly other stalwart conservatives were just not going to go the distance and eviscerate the entire ACA in the midst of a pandemic. It looks like it will live to see another day. Amazing. And someone said on Twitter that Clarence Thomas actually spoke today. Was that a shock or was that something that you guys who watch the courts expected? So this has been really interesting. You know, once the court shut down for COVID, they shut down entirely and then they reopened last spring and went to these telephonic arguments. And Clarence Thomas, who, and this is implicit in your question, but we'll just say it, would go for years without talking. Years! I mean, Mm -hmm. I I remember the last time I was in the court and he spoke, I had like a little mini stroke because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't (laughs) believe I was hearing his voice. And he, when they went to these very, very highly structured telephonic arguments, he started talking and asking questions. And there's been lots of speculation about why he's comfortable doing it on the phone and not in person and what it means. So he's been speaking since the spring. And I would just say for me as somebody who was always just immensely frustrated that I may not agree with his jurisprudential worldview, but it's fascinating. It's this fully realized, very complicated. People, I think, write him off as a kind of Scalia mini-me. That's emphatically not true. He's a really 
interesting jurist who never spoke. And so it's been amazing to have his voice in arguments. And I there's a million reasons I hope that the court continues even after COVID to put their argument sessions online in real time. But I would say the number one reason is how much richer the oral arguments are when he talks. Amazing. Amazing. I was able, I was invited once to go to a session of the United States Supreme Court, and it was awe-inspiring for me. And it was, believe it or not, a hearing about EEOC policy, which is, (laughs) you know, Clarence Thomas came from the Equal Opportunity Commission. Anyway, he didn't say one word. Every other justice asked a question except for Clarence Thomas. So, and he was doing wheelies in his chair and I am not kidding. Oh, I know. I one of the challenges of covering the court for 20 years is that I would have to explain to people that even though he didn't talk, he'd be like rocking back and forth in his chair in ways that like my toddlers did at restaurants. Right. And I was just like, what is up with that? But the other thing that I think is really, and again, I I, I sound like I'm a crazy fangirl. And as I said, he's complicated. But I think that people don't know about Clarence Thomas. I was super lucky I got to interview Justice Ginsburg right before the court closed down. And like she lit up talking about him. Like, I think we don't understand how beloved he is as an individual at the court. And if you ask any class of law clerks who the warmest, funniest, like in-person, most gregarious, the guy who knows the name of the lunch lady and the elevator guy and the gen, it's always Clarence Thomas. And the sort of surly face that he has turned on the world since his confirmation hearings, in some sense, is just another one of those I can't say it's a tragedy because, I mean, who knows what the heck is happening there. But I do think that he is so much beloved and cherished within that building across the partisan divide. And so, again, I think to get to see, having witnessed for years what you're describing, which is him just sort of churlishly sitting in that chair, refusing to participate, to have him really step in in this moment, I just think it's a good outcome for everyone, even if I don't agree with some of what he says and does. Well, if we had sound effects, you would be hearing the equivalent of an explosion in my brain. (laughs) I had no idea. I thought churlish was the kindest thing you could say about him. And I'm totally fascinated now. By the way, I read your interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, particularly the parts about her classmates at Harvard Law School and her experience there. And it is riveting, riveting, charming, wonderful, and a real service for us that you performed there, Dahlia. Okay. First, I have to say, I just enjoy talking to you. You are so smart. You pretend that I'm asking intelligent questions, and that's one of the nicest things you could do. But now it's time for the five things that make your life better. And I have your list. I'm wondering if you have it too. I do. Okay. So let's start with number one. Number one is voters. This sounds super corny, and I'm just going to say it because I've been trying really hard to figure out what moved me so much last week in the elections. And I think it's really easy to say, oh, I'm just moved by, you know, the outcome or it, it wasn't the outcome. For me, it was that despite the fact that 
everybody said this whole thing is going to be stolen and there's no point voting. And by the way, we stopped the mail. And by the way, there's COVID. And by the way, people in Wisconsin, like we're standing in line in the cold in the primary. Like it was insane to insane. vote. It was objectively insane. And I feel, and I'm not saying that in any way to disparage voters, but to just say everything was stacked against the exercise of the franchise. And yet, right? Yeah. Yet people stood in lines. They mailed in their ballots when they couldn't mail in their ballots. When Eric Holder said, everybody stop mailing in your ballots, take it to a drop box. They went to a drop box. They were extraordinary. And I think, you know, not just the raw turnout numbers, which are gobsmacking and the youth numbers and people of color who, by the way, still face vote suppression. It was not an easy election. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, the absolute confidence that any one person can change the world, right? We've had four years of Robert Mueller's going to save us. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's going to save us. Adam Schiff is going to save us. I don't know. Someone's going to. And I just think voters save themselves in the most noble and profound way. And so I'm just like wicked choked up about individuals that did not wait around for a miracle, that just made a miracle. And so that's my my top thing. I agree. Watching the lines, which moved slowly, watching people line up in the rain, knowing that they were going to spend the next three hours outside. It was just as moving a display as I've ever seen. Truly. Amen. Thrilling. Number two. Barbie. <laughs> Very adorable. Did you get the picture? No. Oh, I sent a but picture. But just the name is, is adorable. Okay. If you sent the picture, it's going up on our website. Oh my God. You're going to, you're, uh, it should be in the Smithsonian. She is a thing of beauty. So she is, <laughs> uh, to be sure, named after RBG. I want to point out that my teenage sons who were as choked up about Justice Ginsburg's death as I, um, we got her immediately after tiny little rescue kitten. And my son was looking at her and she's got this little white ruff and then everything else is black. <laughs> and he just looked at her and he, he said, well, she's Arby and <gasps> she has been, I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks, but she has been ridiculously adorable. And anybody who tells you that a little furry animal does not make a difference, it has been life-changing, not just for my kids and my husband and me, but just the mood in our house to have this little fuzzy thing who occasionally meets out justice and liberty for all. It's been (laughs) amazing. So, Arby. Listen, there's a reason the shelters are all getting depleted of adoptable animals because they really do work. It's really that love thing, that love connection. It's true. And she it's doesn't true. need anything. I mean, unlike my teenage sons who require <laughs> <need everything>. constant <laughs> cooking and occasional math help, uh, she just wants to sit on your lap and, like I say, do do gender equality. I am digging her. She's great. Fantastic. Number three. Number three is this book called Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. And this is the semi-serious, I'm toggling between serious and unserious, but this is the semi-serious confession where I say, I've just been really struggling with rage, Lisa. (laughs) And the last couple of years have been for a middle-class, middle-aged, earnest Jewish girl who went to law school, where there are just days where I am on fire fire and for all sorts of complicated reasons, find myself in the green room at MSNBC making small talk and eating the croissants and just don't know where to put it. (laughs) Where to put it. Yeah. 
And and Rebecca Tracer has been one of my Sherpas on this. She, I think, has written more profoundly about anger and women and organizing. Yes. So she said, read Brittany Cooper, and I did. And it has helped me just fully navigate what, for me, I guess I would just say in every single interview, TV show, podcast I did post-RBG, I would say to people very earnestly and well-meaningly, she was not angry. She was not the notorious RBG. She was not a gangsta. She was a get-along, tiny incrementalist. You know, her best friend was Scalia. Like I said, her dear friend was Clarence Thomas. Like she was not angry. And I said it so many times that I started to choke. And so I think for me, this book has really been just a useful beacon of owning anger, thinking about anger, the power of anger, where to put it, why we're so afraid of it. And it is it is really, I think for me, kind of torqued my head back. It's not like I'm running around punching people, but I think it's really helping me process some of my mythologizing about swallowing anger that I really, really have used as part of not just, you know, the way I think about the law and the way I think about organizing, but certainly gender. And mm-hmm. I think we as women really need to sit with that and think about why we are so eager to please everyone all the time. Well, I think that's true. I think I was conditioned in the 20th century a long time ago that, you know, I feel like I was raised in the post-depression because my parents were. And it wasn't nice for women to show anger. And we all thought, you know, you have to take a lot of licks because that's the way it's done. Also, I would say during the last four years, right before we learned from Bob Woodward's book, that he really had downplayed the virus. I thought I was already about as angry as I could be. How how can I grow more anger? I don't, I didn't, you know, it doesn't feel right. It feels like I have 12 legs. Right, right. And so I'm going to read the book. Oh, it's beautiful. It's just, it's just bare. It's all out there. But I think it's, you know, it's of a piece with this just how, especially in a moment where sort of white male patriarchal power seems to be resurgent, it's just, it's like straight into the veins. I needed it. Great. Great. Thank you for that. Number four. Number four is my parents. I put this in the bucket with Arby of things that just (laughs) nourish my soul. But, you know, my parents are halfway around the world. They Where are they? They're in Israel. They've lived there for since 1990, I think. Oh, boy. And, you know, lockdown has sucked. It's really sucked in Israel. They're both in their 80s. And they've just been, I can't say it better than they have just been kind of loving and fine and their hair is super weird. And, (laughs) you know, they just week in, week out, they're both fully, fully like all marbles. There's no deficiency there. And yet they've just gone from being kind of outdoor people to indoor people and from people with really busy, complicated lives to people who just zoom into everything and talk about everything. And they just say these sweet, tender things about, I guess I'm just lucky if I'm going to be locked down. It's with the person I've been in love with for 50 whatever years. Oh, Dahlia. 
That's so wonderful. When was the last time you saw them? Um, We were supposed to be with them for Passover and we couldn't. So I think the last time was the year before. And, you know, I've gotten used to seeing them once a year at least. And my kids have gotten used to being with them. In fact, uh, being with them without us, which they really appreciate. And I I guess I just think like I'm so mindful of how hard this is for people Mm. who are older so mindful and how isolating and lonely and hard and repetitive it is. And I guess I just, I hope that when I'm my parents' age, I will have a tenth the grace that they have shown since March. That's lovely. And number five. Yeah, this is... (laughs) Back to the dark place where we began. I guess it's, you know, when you were like, Daya, are we in a coup? So I I think I called this team Tyranny, which is... I thought that was a great name, given who's in it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's, you know, Tim Snyder, Jason Stanley, Masha Gessen, Steve Levitsky, Daniel Ziblatt, Bandy Lee. I mean, there's so, so many people who have been writing since the day of the inauguration, since before the inauguration. This is yeah. what authoritarianism looks like. This is what, you know, minority rule looks like. This is what to watch for. And I think, you know, I always think some of those people are serious historians, professors, thinkers. I always wonder if they had to creep into their offices early in the morning and lock the door because people in their department thought they were nuts or hysterical or overreacting. And all uh-huh. the ways that they've just proven to be kind of the prophets of this moment, that mm-hmm. even if we're not in full on you know, Victor Orban authoritarianism. We have in so many ways come close and we've really seen the weak spots. And I just feel like those people who write to the bitter end, I think are kind of unsung and they are seen as kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. They, you know, the doom, the doom and gloom. The doomsayers. Yeah. But boy, they kept us lashed to history, lashed to international geopolitics, lashed to how fragile structures are. And for me, at least, I just, I think we dodged a bullet. I truly do. But I think we dodged it eyes wide open because of those people. And I think that it's not over till it's over. But talking to you makes me feel so much better about the country than I did 40 minutes ago. So thank you so much, Dahlia Lithwick. This has been a real pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you do, really. Oh, well, gosh, (laughs) gosh, now I have to say this. My guest this week on Five Things That Make Life Better has been Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate and host of the podcast Amicus. You can follow Dahlia, which is one of the most beautiful names, on Twitter and Facebook at Dahlia Lithwick. You have been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program, especially a picture of Arby, the new cat in the family. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay cool, act natural, wear a mask. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.